0: I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited that uh, Jake asked me to come and preach to you all. I this is this is where I love to do. This is what I love to do. I love to preach. Love to open God's word and see what we can learn from it. And uh, uh, I w- have always considered myself, I guess you could say, the quote "faith alone" guy. Uh, that's like uh, you know, I was always told. Uh, by my dad, who's also a pastor in South Carolina, to uh, pick the right hill to die on, so to speak. Uh, know which hills to die on in your ministry, and uh, the one that I've chosen is is faith alone, and uh, that's the thing that I, I'm, I'll i definitely be willing to die on, uh, as long as uh, the Lord has me here on this earth. So, uh, anyway, so I was just more than elated uh, when when Jake asked me to come and preach on the, the topic of faith, and, and so I'm really excited to uh, open the word and see what we can learn from that. Uh, I'll invite you now, uh, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to get there in a minute. Um, But prior to uh, a global pandemic, one of the most bizarre stories I ever came across was actually in 2019 with this weird phenomena called overcrowding on Mount Everest. Did you hear about this? Back in 2019, uh, actually, one of the most dangerous things uh, for those who were trying to summit Mount Everest, was not the conditions, was not just the the feat alone of trying to, uh, to summit the tallest peak in the world. Actually, the most dangerous thing in 2019 was actually too many people trying to summit that mountain, which is just a weird thing. Actually, one writer put it like this. They were commenting on this weird uh, phenomenon back in 2019. They said, Mount Everest has become so overcrowded that the sheer number of people trying to summit the mountain at once is putting climbers' lives at risk. The known death toll during this year's climbing season, which is typically only a few weeks, is 11. And the last time 11 or more people died while climbing Everest was during a 2015 avalanche. But the latest deaths seem to be the result of overcrowding, not inclement weather. One climber who spoke to the New York Times told the paper that he had to step around dead bodies on his way down the mountain. And experienced climbers have called on the Nepalese government to begin limiting the number of permits and issues because there were way more people on Everest than there should be. Now this is just the weirdest thing I think I've ever read. Only because what... Who, or who would have ever thought that the danger, most dangerous part about summiting Mount Everest were the amount of people trying to summit Mount Everest? It's just a, a fascinating story to me. Especially because what was once considered such a monumental accomplishment that when you summited the mountain, you would be knighted by the queen herself, Sir Edmund Hillary in 1953, by the way is now being attempted with such frequency that there's too many people. It's just a weird phenomenon. What would inspire someone to want to do this? I don't don't know. I can't tell you. Uh, I have no inclination to want to climb Mount Everest. It's not something that I want to put at risk. But why? Why are so many people trying to do this? Why were so many people trying to accomplish something, and actually they were competing for space on the earth's tallest point? What's the motivation? (laughs) I think it's because we as humans are sort of predisposed to want to do the impossible. That's sort of the the bent of our hearts. And I think that in 2019, this very fact of overcrowding on Mount Everest reveals that what we worship and value as a society, as human beings, is being the strong and successful ones. We want to be the heroic. We want to be the triumphant. We want to be the powerful. And we want to achieve the unachievable and attain the unattainable. What better evidence than that than wanting to be on the top of the world, literally. So much so that you're going to risk your life to do so. I think this reveals what humanity worships. Worships the idea that we can be the heroes. We can be the champions. Indeed, there's nothing that we cannot overcome. Or so we like to think, I suppose. And I think in that way, those that risk their lives on Mount Everest, they sort of serve as almost like living parables. (laughs) Living parables of our desperate hearts, of mankind's foolish errand to be their own savior. I think, actually, that's what's revealed on every single page of Scripture, by the way. We don't have to read about Everest climbers. That gives us a good example. But actually, if you were to turn to every single page of Scripture, what I think if you, this is a really rudimentary way to explain it, but I think what Scripture boils down to is mankind is woefully insufficient to save themselves, and yet God himself is infinitely sufficient to save those who are insufficient. Every page is going to show you that in one way or another. In fact, when I was thinking about the idea of proclaiming faith alone as a means to salvation. And that we should stand steadfast in faith alone. I was immediately struck with all these different passages I could have taken you. But for whatever reason, I kept coming back to this particular passage. 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 5. And the first 19 or so verses reveal this story of the the guy you might be familiar with. Maybe you remember the story from your days in Sunday school, the story of Naaman, the captain of the guard. And I think here we have faith alone expounded in such a way that it becomes so evident and so clear. And it's so evident what is in this passage is the the foolish notion that we can do the impossible. That we can do, quote, some great thing to save ourselves. That's what I kind of want to walk through. I want to walk through this text in 2 Kings chapter 5, the first 19 or so verses. And then uh, I have three quick lessons I want to walk through as we're trying to expound faith alone, show what it means, show what it looks like, and also show what it does not look like. So first of all, what I want to talk about is the first lesson is the silliness of trying to do the impossible, The silliness of trying to do the impossible. Notice with me verse 1 of chapter 5. As we are told about Naaman's resume. Notice now Naaman verse 1. Captain of the host of the king of Syria was a great man. With his master and honorable. Because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor. This is a guy's guy. A man's man. He is a very important, highly regarded captain of the guard. A conqueror. A champion. A war hero of the highest order. He is the guy everyone notices when they're walking down the street. Look at There goes Naaman. He's known by everyone. He's lauded by everyone. He's exalted by everyone. I'm sure he very much enjoyed the noise of his own heroics. As everyone's championing and praising this mighty man of valor over and over again. Yet for all of that. For all of those exemplary credentials to Naaman's name, every single one of them is negated, wiped out by one single detail that ends this verse. Did you notice? He's the captain of the host of the king of Syria. He's a great man. He's honorable. And the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. For all of that might, for all of that bravado, for all of that incredible heroics, all of it, all of that strength is wiped out. Why? Because his weakness was unable to be hidden. (laughs) He was a leper. He had a skin disease. So for however mighty he thought himself, his weakness was always front and center. For however much he accomplished, for all the accolades he could ever acclaim to his name. He could never hide his leprosy. He could never hide the fact that he was deficient in and of himself. He was diseased. And indeed, as, as honorable as he was, as proclaimed as he was, as acclaimed as Naaman was, no one would have traded places with him. Yes, even though he's the captain of everything, he could probably get anything he wants at the snap of a finger. Yet no one would ever trade places with Naaman. Because he has a skin disease. He is a leper. He's doomed to die well before his time. And so, verse 2 Naaman's soldiers, they plunder the land of Israel, and they bring back some captives, some spoils of war. And it, it says in the Syrians, verse 2, had gone out by companies, and out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and they had, uh, uh, had brought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife, this anonymous little girl. She seems so unimportant and so insignificant, but actually actually her role in the story deserves a sermon all of its own, perhaps for another time. But this little girl notices Naaman's condition. She notices that Naaman is in a predicament, and she proceeds to tell of a way that Naaman can be healed. Notice verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, so Naaman's wife... Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Think about that for a moment. This girl has been brought out captive away from her home. And instead, perhaps what I would do is just... See this man's condition, this guy who brought you as a hostage out of your own land, seeing his condition and actually wishing that his condition would speed up his demise. She actually works to heal him. She's healing her captor, or at least telling him of a way he could be healed. And then after some miscommunication, which will take a little bit to get through, but I want to jump to verse 8. Because Naaman is eventually summoned by Elijah, who steps into a situation, and which is really important to note that Elisha calls Naaman to himself. Look at verse 8. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard. That the king of Israel had rent his clothes that he sent to the king saying wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So he's the guy that the little girl was talking about. There's this prophet in Samaria and his name is Elisha and he can heal you of your skin disease, your leprosy. He comes, Naaman does, to Elisha's door. With a full blown entourage, all the trappings of a royal escort. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. (laughs) He comes, making sure everyone knows Naaman is here. Naaman has arrived. He wants to sure. everyone knows just how important he was. But notice, I love this detail. Notice who comes to to the door as Naaman knocks. Verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him. This mighty man of valor, this guy who has interacted with kings and dignitaries from all over the land, is now greeted by a lowly servant of this prophet he has had to travel to get to. (laughs) Talk about fury. Talk about disgust. How dare this guy. This guy. I've come to him. And he doesn't even have the decency to come out and greet me. To welcome me into his palace or into his home. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm Naaman. I'm the captain of the host of Syria. And you're greeting me with a, with a messenger? <laughs> with this unnamed Servant? His resume in this moment is not being respected. All of those mighty deeds of valor are somehow not being regarded by this no-name prophet, at least in his mind. You see, he figured his status would have warranted him somehow a little bit better treatment. (laughs) But not only that... He's not just furious at the fact that he's not welcomed by this prophet. He's also furious at the fact that this prophet gives him a really harebrained idea of how he can be healed. Notice verse 10. Elisha sent his messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. He was very mad, is essentially what that word means, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. This messenger comes to Naaman. Giving him the, the, the prescribed method of healing. And his first reaction is. You want me to do what now? You want me to go and bathe in the Jordan? Are you crazy? Have you seen how that river looks? It's dirtier than the Susquehanna. How? No. There's way better rivers that I can get in. To get clean. Naaman's offended no hard assignment nothing to accomplish no ritual no magic sort of mystical moment for him to come and do no great thing to overcome Elisha's solution excuse me sounds too simple all he has to do is go in the river Jordan and he will be cleaned. You see, Elisha's solution is somehow not difficult enough. Naaman wants to do the impossible. He wants something to conquer. Such is why he leaves. Imagine that you're being told how to be healed. and Instead, he gets in a rage and he leaves still in his disease. He's still a leper as he's walking away in a rage. And about this time, verse 13... His servants call him out on this, which I think is fascinating. Just like the unnamed little girl at the beginning, these unnamed servants call out their captain on how sort of irrational he's being. Verse 13, and his servants came near and spake to him and said, My father, they're greeting him with such tenderness. If the prophet, notice their question, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith unto thee, wash and be clean. As Naaman is going away so mad that the solution is so simple. I imagine his servants sort of giving him some puzzled looks. I know you don't like this, name, But you should at least try it. You would have jumped at a really great thing to do. And so... After, I'm sure, no small amount of hemming and hawing, Naaman finally, stubbornly comes to his senses, and he does what the prophet says. He goes to the Jordan, and he bathes seven times. Verse 14, Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And notice, immediately, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Immediately. Immediately upon dipping into the water seven times, all of that diseased skin is washed away. And he is, is clean as snow, we could say. He is, his flesh is, as it says there, like the flesh of a little child. Like baby's skin smooth. <laughs> and he's clean for perhaps the first time in his life. A miracle. The silliness of trying to do the impossible. <laughs> He wanted something hard to do. He was given something seemingly too easy. Seemingly not difficult enough. But before we we get to applying that, notice secondly, not do we have in this story the silliness of trying to do the impossible. But also secondly, the silliness of trying to buy what's yours. Because notice his response. Naaman is healed, he eventually stubbornly, sort of not really wanting to, but he does it anyway. Goes to the Jordan, he bathes seven times, he's healed, he's fully clean. But now, in the aftermath of that, he's not just frustrated with that method of healing. He's frustrated with the fact that he couldn't do anything to buy it. It's it's too free. Notice verse 15. And he, Naaman, returned to the man of God. He goes back to Elisha's house. He and all of his company, his whole entourage came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he, Elisha said, as the Lord liveth, before whom I stand I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burden of the earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods but unto the Lord. In this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant. That when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he, Elisha, said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. This is so fascinating to me. After receiving this healing, what is his first response? He wants to go back and try and and pay it back. He wants to go and give Elisha something in return. I got to pay him back. He goes to his door and he tries to compensate him for the healing. Thank you for what you did for me. Now, here's some money, here's a gift for all your troubles, and I demand that you take it. That's essentially Naaman's stance. Again, he's banking on his resume in order to get what he needs. He's flaunting his wealth. And he's so resistant to this free and complete restoration. That he has to try and renegotiate the terms of his healing. You notice, know, so Elisha never asked for reciprocity. He just said, go and be healed. Go and bathe yourself seven times. And you will be restored. And Naaman has this urge. I gotta pay it back. I gotta give him something in return. But I love Elisha. Says he refused. (laughs) I will receive nothing. You can't pay for this is essentially Elisha's words. Go in peace. Why is that so? Because what Elisha was giving him was a gift. A gift cannot be bought. As soon as that happens, it's not a gift. It's a transaction. It's something where funds are being transferred between two parties. This is a gift. It's offered for free. Nothing expected in return. It's given. It's given only. You see, and I think in that way, Naaman shows himself to be not much different than you and me. In fact, I'll just put myself in it. This is just like me. His story and that earlier story of the Everest climbers, I think, is the perfect picture of our failure to understand God's salvation. The way, the God's method of saving sinners. We want something hard to do. We want some great thing to accomplish, just like Naaman. Give me a list. Give me a law. Give me something to accomplish. Remember Jesus' words in the Gospels? What does he say? This is the work of God. Go climb Everest. Go give penance. Go pray in the temple this many times. No. What does he say? This is the work of God. That you believe on the one that he has sent. That's the work. Period. Period. This is the gospel of salvation from sin by grace. Through faith. And it's often seen as too easy. It's seen as a little bit too simple. It's certainly too free. Certainly there has to be some caveats. There's got to be some fine print. There's got to be something that, that we have to, some qualification. You remember those car commercials? I love car commercials. You know, there's one particular brand, I won't put them under the bus, but they always announce and advertise, you can come and bring in any type of car that you want, and we'll give you such and such amount of dollars for it for a trade-in, right? It's a really good deal. You're thinking, man, I can get in a new car, and I can just bring in my clunker and get a new one right now. And then, of course, at the end of the commercial, they have that guy that talks way faster than an auctioneer. Read off all those terms and conditions. And if you you blow those up, you realize that you have to meet a very specific set of qualifications to get said advertised deal. It is too good to be true. There's too many stipulations. There's too much fine print. Let me tell you this evening, the work of the gospel, the announcement, has no fine print to it. There's no little qualifications that disqualify you from coming to the gospel of grace. There's no little stipulations. And yet, what's so fascinating to me, at least my heart, I still want there to be. If only there was a law to keep. Something that I could do to be sure I could pay back. That's what I want. But nothing, guess what? You know what offends God? When we try to pay back something he's already paid for. The silliness of trying to buy what's yours. (laughs) It's like trying to buy your salvation. By doing something good in the aftermath. As if he's expecting that. It's like sort of trying to pay for a check that's been paid. Have you ever done that? You're out to to dinner with some friends and this very generous man at the table, he he makes sure that the check is paid. But you insist on contributing something to the bill. There's that offense, right? Like, I can't accept something so free, you're too generous to me. Let me just, I'll cover the tip, let me just leave some cash on the table, I'll I'll get that. I want to leave something. I want to do my part. I want to, I want to pay it back. And I think in the same way was <laughs> the gospel announced. Jesus paid it all. The debt of sin that we owe paid, done in full. You know what's offensive to God? Trying to pay that back as if we ever could. As if any of our holiness, which the prophet Isaiah calls filthy rags, could ever pay God back for what he has already accomplished in his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing left undone. There's nothing left unfinished. Your salvation and mine is settled in Christ and just like Naaman was unable to renegotiate the terms of his healing after the fact, you and I cannot renegotiate the terms of our reconciliation with God. Second Corinthians 5 talks about that. Christ made reconciliation, how? By becoming sin for those who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. It's done. <laughs> Your good works cannot pay back for what Jesus already paid for in his sacrificial death. It's settled. But like Naaman, we immediately go about trying to pay it back. We want to we want to bank on what we can do. We want to bank on this, this silliness of trying to do the impossible. The silliness of trying to buy what's ours. But guess what? The salvation that God offers and extends in his son Jesus it is not like a mortgage. It's not like something you can pay back through a series of installments over a period of time. That would be bad news. That would not be gospel. That would not be good news. You know what the gospel says? Paid in full. If there was a bank note on your record, that's what it would say. Actually, it would say something better. Romans 8.1 There's therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not just a little bit you have to make up. Not just some that you can try and pay it back. No further payment. Jesus Hate it all. This, this, I would say, is the essence of faith alone. Which leads me to the last point, I think, is in this text. The steadfastness of faith alone for salvation. Jumping to another guy that I love. You and I can squabble, we can debate perhaps about the legacy of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. I find myself sort of like, it's like my hobby to, to explore that era of history. I would say that that whole thing, that whole Protestant movement in the 1500s hinges on one monk's quest for assurance. Really, that's what it boils down to. It, the prevailing motive of that whole thing was the idea that this one guy was seeking for assurance of his salvation. You, maybe you have that very colloquial image in your head of Martin Luther taking that sheet of paper called the 95 Theses and nailing it to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. And whether that's totally historically accurate or not, I don't know, and that doesn't really matter. But what, you have to understand that uh, what led Luther to that point is sort of uh, the similar, sort, in, in an opposite way, sort of what we see in Naaman's story of healing. Let me explain. The driving force of Martin Luther's sort of movement against the Roman Catholic Church back in the 1500s can be boiled down to that fact. That he was seeking for assurance of his faith. He was originally a lawyer, Martin Luther was. He was enrolled in law school. And then as the story goes, he was on a journey one night and he found himself caught in a very terrible thunderstorm. A little bit worse than this. And on the road, he was nearly struck by lightning. So he takes covert under a tree, and there he prays to God, having never really prayed before, and he prays very loudly. And he says, if God would but spare my life, I will become a monk. I'll become one of your students. So, of course, God does. He spares him, and he enrolls in an Augustinian monastery where he begins to study religion and the scriptures, and as is Luther's character, he was insatiably religious. He was studying the Bible and he came to realize just how high God's holiness was. And he realized that he could never reach those heights unless he was confessing every single sin as he understood it. the severity of God's righteousness demanded even the smallest of offenses be confessed. And in fact, one story says that one of his priests at that monastery eventually banned him from coming to confession unless he had something really serious to confess. You're confessing too much. Just wait till tomorrow or next week when it's really bad. Luther was confessing his sins too much. Why? He's seeking for assurance. He wants rest. He wants something to be settled. But his religion could never give him that. He was always a restless soul searching for something to quiet him. And he couldn't ever confess enough. He couldn't pay enough penance. He couldn't ever pray enough. And he eventually to, he grew to be resentful. And in fact, he grew to be fearful of this righteous God. How dare he demand in his scriptures that we be righteous when we can't live up to that standard? <laughs> and wouldn't he you know it that about that time... Luther begins lecturing through the books of Romans and Galatians. And he stumbled at that phrase in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 where it talks about the righteousness of God. And then he was struck by its true meaning. It's not just the righteousness that God demands that he could never live up to. It's also the gospel of the righteousness that God gives. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the hook. The Holy Spirit opened Martin Luther's eyes in the turning point of his life and the reformation itself and all of history we might say hinges on that fact that he was, had his eyes open to the fact that the righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that God gives in his son Jesus. This is the only religion that has that fact by the way. The God is not just the God, the law keeper, and the law demander. He, Or I should say, he's not just the law demander, he's the law keeper. Precisely for those who are the law breakers. See, this is what Luther would soon discover. That the scriptures were not a God-given... Agenda wherein sinners can accomplish righteousness on their own. Actually, they were a God-given announcement that the righteousness that God demands is the very righteousness He gives and offers to everyone on the basis of faith in His Son. And that's because His Son, Jesus Christ, went to that cross and accomplished it there. That's what drove Luther's hammer. He was seeking for assurance. He wasn't trying to go on some egotistical trip to condemn the Catholic Church. He wanted assurance, something settled to bank on. He wanted something that he could plant his feet on and know that he was righteous no matter what else his life may look like. He wanted to be known as as one who was uncondemned. came from this whole encompassing determination to know and be assured of his salvation. No priest could give him that. No sort of tradition could give him that. No amount of religious zeal. Nothing of his own discipline. He could never attain it. He could never accomplish it. Much like Naaman, he could never do some great thing in order to get this in his life. It was only... Through the hearing of the word, the scriptures, that the gospel was proclaimed, and then his soul is made to rest in the gift of holiness that comes through that gospel in the person of Christ alone. So you see, in my mind, the story of Naaman and the story of Martin Luther are the same. Wherein the crux of both reveal that it all boils down to faith. Faith alone faith alone precisely in Christ alone and here Naaman gives us a negative view of that what it doesn't look like it doesn't look by trying to do the impossible and it doesn't look like trying to buy what's yours actually it's actually much more like like surrendering any amount of effort you could ever amount to get what the gospel has already given you (laughs) the Jordan River There was nothing magical about it. There wasn't anything special about it. Elisha did not give Naaman some mystical formula to pray or some ritual to follow. Naaman Naaman had nothing in and of himself by which he could make himself new. And just like that, neither do you and I. We have nothing in and of ourselves that we can offer this Lord and say, I want healing our story just like it has only one river, the gospel. There is only one way and all that way requires is believe in the one in whom he has sent. Put your faith in a finished salvation. One that is already done. One that is already accomplished. And again, this, uh, quoting Luther, he says, Faith is this. It's a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and so certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. And this confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy. That's the testimony of a man who has insurance. Not because he's done anything. Not because he's accomplished some great thing. But because he realizes he never could. He realizes that it is so far outside of him. That his only recourse is to surrender. To give up. Knowing that the gospel has accomplished it already. Maybe you grew up hearing about the gospel and Jesus and all those sorts of things, and yet you grew up doubting your salvation, seeking assurance, and so you kept throwing sticks in the fire as they do at camps. You kept making other professions of faith. Your assurance of faith is found as you recognize that your sin, every last the speck of it was already covered by blood that was shed 2,000 years ago on a ratty Roman cross by this guy who is considered an insurrectionist. That's where your sin was paid for and covered, and it's done. It's a fact of history that all of your sin, past, present, and future, is under that blood. There's nothing else we have to do to accomplish it. It is the gift of salvation given when he died and rose again, this is what Christ accomplished. Righteousness for those who were unrighteous. So, like Naaman, we are struck with the simplicity of that message. Because all that's left for us to do is to go down to the river and bathe. To repent and believe in that good news as Christ says. And stand steadfast on Christ the solid rock. Let me ask you, do you have faith that dares to believe in God's gracious salvation? Or do you believe that that work of salvation is already finished? Or are you trying to do some great thing? I pray that we would all stand steadfast on that. On faith alone. In the finished work of Christ alone. That we may live lives uh, solely deo gloria. For the glory of God alone. Nothing gives God more glory than when his sons and daughters. His sinning children. Put their trust in what he has accomplished. Rather than in what they can accomplish. And what he has finished, and not what they can try and muster up. Faith alone is hard, because we are natural overcomers. We're like Everest climbers. We want some great thing to do. We are all Naamans, <laughs> wanting something hard. And what Jesus says to us, what? Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A gentle and lowly Savior knows how to tend to sheep who cannot help themselves, but they stumble on themselves. (laughs) We like to think we can do the impossible, but we cannot. Our only recourse Our only rest for weary souls is a living, daring confidence on this grace of God. That's faith alone. That's standing steadfast for the faith. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes. I'll close this in a word of prayer, then I'll ask Jake to come on up. Jesus. I pray that your spirit would fill this place tonight.